Marvelites, welcome. You are listening to This Week in Marvel. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M. And I am Lorraine Sink, a.k.a. Human Woman. Oh, and look, we have an intro that somebody wrote for us. This Week in Marvel is a podcast where we talk about all the things that happened this week in Marvel. What? We talk about comic books, movies, TV shows, video games, and much more. Plus, we have interviews with really amazing people. That was a good description of the show. All right. What do we got this week? This week, we are looking back at some exciting moments from 80 years of Marvel history. You guys know we do it every week, and we're giving you more. Uh... Ryan's also going to be giving us a big talk about the negative zone. That isn't just when your coworkers are mad at you. That is a real place in the Marvel Universe. And then we have an interview with Anthony Daniels. Who's that? That's C-3PO. Jerks, if you didn't know, now you know. Yeah. As a rapper once said. What a show, actually. I was yeah. thinking about this week. Uh, I had so much fun putting together all the negative zone stuff. And the interview with Anthony Daniels is a hoot. But also, really big this week, Disney Plus has launched. I know. Oh, my gosh. I'm already on. I'm signed up. I'm watching things. So I, I of course, was up at five and change. I actually got an hour of sleep with the baby after I woke up originally at four o'clock to take care of her. And at like 530 or whatever, we started, I saw, I put us into Disney Plus on the TV and started going through it. Uh, first search was for the Muppets to see what Muppets content was there, which is very good. Um, but there's, yeah, it's great. There's so much. I know. I am really pumped. There's 16 Marvel Cinematic Universe films, and they announced just, I think, this week that Marvel Studios' Avengers Endgame is on at launch. So you can be watching Endgame right now if you want to be, which I think you do. But not while you're listening to the show. That would be very weird for your brain. I know. Don't associate us with sadness. <laughs> a lot of sad stuff happens. <laughs> so much sad stuff. Uh, what else? Let's see. The uh, February solicits for Marvel Comics came out this week. And uh, the solicits are the way that we let comic book shops know, as well as Marvel insiders and everybody who watches all of our content, know what the heck we are putting out in a couple of months. It's very important. Yeah, and we're psyched. We have some books that got announced at comic conventions in Paris and London. Um, but we are very much looking forward to these new announced titles. Gwen Stacy, number one, by Christos Gage, with art by your friend and mine, Todd Nock, and a cover by Adam Hughes. Yeah, I was talking to Todd about this when he and I were hanging out. We were doing a project in the city a couple weeks ago, so he's very excited for it. And he's just one of like the most prolific, fast artists I in know. the world. So good. I can't wait for this. Yeah, he he does beautiful work. It always kind of reminds me, it's very like Rockwellian. Yeah. It's like got that sweetness to it. They also announced Falcon and Winter Soldier, number one, written by Derek Landy, with art by Frederico Vincentini, and a cover by Dan Mora, which I'm very excited for this, just in general, because we've been already hearing about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier uh, in the Disney Plus realm. Yeah. And Ant-Man number one, written by Zeb Wells, with art by Dylan Burnett, and a cover by Edward Petrovich. Yeah! Uh, this one's going to be great. I love Zeb. I'm very glad that he's back doing content for Marvel. Yeah. Uh, you know, this one, this Ant-Man book, is also going to have his daughter Cassie as Stinger. She's got a new superhero yeah. identity. She's going to be superheroing it up alongside Scott Lang. It's going to be terrific. Um, but why don't we talk about some of your... Top books from this week's episode of Marvel's Pull List. Yes. Uh, well, Tucker and I, every week we talk about all the new comic books that Marvel publishes. Uh, we discuss what we love, give you a little bit of insight into the creative process, tell you what we're excited for, tell you all the creators that are involved, because I think credit is very important. But our top picks this week were Morbius number one, Unbeatable Squirrel Girl number 50. So sad it's ending. Black Cat Annual number one and Invaders number 11. Oh my gosh, Unbeatable Squirrel Girl was an amazing wrap-up to this series. It gave me a lot of feelings, and I know why you chose Invaders number 11, because abs. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, there's a whole section with Captain America and Namor stranded on a I beach. I know! Cap is full, like, blonde man beard, shirtless, going fishing for him and Namor, as best friends do. It's I, great. I love this Namor look, too, because he just wears, like, kind of, I don't know, armory shoulder pads, but he does not have anything covering his vital organs. So, Luke's. Everything that comes to, like, attack his organs gets stunned into, like, just stopping. They're like, whoa, of, abs. Oh, oh, my goodness. How do I tie that? 
<laughs> all right. Well, all of those are wonderful. You should go read them. Anyone who's interested, you should go subscribe to Marvel's Pull List wherever you get your podcasts. And that includes Pandora. And then watch video versions on Marvel.com. Yeah. Um, I think Tucker put together a piece with Ryan North Aww. on Marvel.com talking about the end of Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. So I definitely suggest you check that out. Um, and 50 of the 58 issues, 52 of the 58 issues are available on Marvel Unlimited because it the total oh, right. series, the total run right. – was 58 plus a graphic novel. Um, so most of it's on Marvel Unlimited. Lots to read. Uh, it's going to be one of those evergreen, like, this is one of the best things we've ever published. That's right, because, so fun fact, Squirrel Girl published twice with number ones in the same year because the first year it came out, it launched in, like, early in the year around January, and then we did the all-new, all-different Marvel, and so it had to relaunch with all the other titles. So my favorite is in the second run which was the same year it was like uh only our second number one this year yeah only our second number one this year which was well chef's kiss thank you ryan q north and they followed it up this year with the last issue saying only our second number 50 this year because they oh, right. the, the for, number 42 they said it's our 50th issue but number 42 was very good. But that's a little bit of Marvel history. We're going to dig into some more Marvel history right now, talking about the week of November 15th through the 21st with This Week in Marvel History. Going to start things off with November 19th, 1968. Thor and Silver Surfer meet for the first time in Silver Surfer number four by Stan Lee and Steve Buscema. Surfer actually meets Loki first, who uh, tricks the Surfer into battling the quote-unquote evil Thor, who threatens all life. There's a great splash page, like, opening image of Loki on his throne. Just John Buscema killing <laughs> it all issue long. Uh, you come for Silver Surfer getting into shenanigans in Asgard, but you stay for Surfer petting a lion and hanging out with the wild animals he's befriended. It's one of my favorite scenes. He's just like, ho-hum, what is life? What about you? I've given you everything, my animal friends. It's like a line is like, purr, purr. There's an elephant behind him, a crocodile's like, hey. It's such a great scene. You like it because that's what you would do if you had the power cosmic. You'd be like, I have more pets. Yes, 100%. There is no question about it. Uh, also, don't miss one of Marvel's most celebrated and homage covers by John Buscema. Uh, yeah, it's that groovy cover where Thor is on the rainbow bridge battling the surfer. Yeah, they're like coming out coming at each other in this great way. It's been redone a million times, but you can't beat the, the original. November 16th, 1971, we have Tomb of Dracula, number one, by Jerry Conway and Gene Colan, introducing Dracula properly into the Marvel Universe. He had some other appearances in numerous comics, but the, like, the Dracula that we know and recognize as the Lord of the Vampires, he starts here. Uh, and this is just Marvel full-on jumping into that horror hype of the 1970s. It would go for... About 70 issues, you would have numerous spinoffs, you'd get magazines, you'd get an anime adaptation, uh, which is, it's fine, um, <laughs> and, and much more. Colin would go on to pencil the entire run, which is amazing. So good. Another incredible achievement for one of our all-time greats. He is joined through most of the series after, I think it's about issue five or six, uh, by writer Marv Wolfman. And so the two of them are really looked at as like the team for Tomb of Dracula. But man, it's real good. November 16th, 1976, one of the leprechauns of Cassidy Keep reveals Wolverine's name, Logan, for the first time in Uncanny X-Men, number 103 by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. The X-Men battle Juggernaut and Black Tom Cassidy, but the leprechaun action is so good. So good. They're, the leprechauns at the beginning of the issue are carrying Nightcrawler through the castle. Yeah! Uh, the, the, the scene with where this leprechaun calls Wolverine Logan, he's like... What? He's like, ah, oh, don't you worry. Us little people, we know things. It's like, what is going on? I want more Leprechaun action in Marvel Comics. Uh, November 20th, 1979, Dazzler, a.k.a. Allison Blair, makes her shining debut in Uncanny X-Men number 130 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. It is in the middle of the Dark Phoenix saga, and you see Cyclops, Jean Grey, and Nightcrawler head downtown to a dance club in New York City where they're hoping to make contact with a new mutant. That new mutant turns out to be Dazzler. It's... Real fun to look at it from a cultural perspective as well, because they are going downtown where now it would be like the ritziest, you know, like, oh, yeah. like fancy, not fancy. Um, but like the cool, like hip. The, yeah, coolest, hippest neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But the narration here is like, it's disgusting. Everything's falling down. You may get killed. And then they go into this club. And there's like all these like dirt bags all around the club. And then Dazzler pops out and she's all like disco beautiful. 
it's fascinating. <laughs> also, I think that everybody thinks of Dazzler as such a 70s character, but she really came out at the very like last blip of the 70s. It's, also, this cover is the oh, most, my God. one of the most homage covers to in, in this book. It's yeah. so good. I love Dazzler, but I'm like, come on, Marvel editorial of, <laughs> of the late 70s. You're like seven years behind the curve on this one, but whatever. You gave us Dazzler. Yeah, baby. All right. November 19th, 1991, Omega Red debuts in X-Men number four in 1991 by Jim Lee and John Byrne. Uh, emerging naked and stealing the life force of 25 people to be born again. <laughs> like <laughs> so many of us. Yeah, right. Um, like that's how I came out. So relatable. Um, Omega Red begins his revenge quest against Wolverine. Uh, this issue also features an utterly delightful Jubilee and Gambit versus Wolverine and Rogue pickup basketball game because this was the heyday of uh, the X-Men hanging out to play sports. So good. I but, love it. Like I could have dumped all the Omega Red stuff and just had it for the, the basketball game is perfect. In, in the new Dawn of X stuff, we better get more sports time with the X-Men. Yes, please. That was our Marvel history. Be sure to read more of it on Marvel.com. But Ryan, I know that you've been doing a lot of research on the negative zone. Yeah. Woo-wee. All right. So uh, the reason we have a negative zone talk this week is because there are two very cool Marvel comics that are coming out really soon. Fantastic Four Negative Zone, written by Mike Carey with art by Stefano Caselli. A series of books also called Annihilation Scourge. The first one, The Alpha, written by Matthew Rosenberg with art by Juana Ramirez and C.N. Tormey, comes out next week. Yeah, and Fantastic Four Negative Zone is coming out on November 27th, and it's about the Fantastic Four going into the Negative Zone. As far as we know, yes, I haven't read it yet. It's it's a little bit early for me to get my copy. Um, So yeah, that's super cool. And Annihilation Scourge begins with Annihilation Scourge Alpha, which is very negative and super zony. The Negative Zone, of course, is a weird place. I always feel like it is just, um, it essentially makes you feel bad um, honestly, that is actually a hundred percent true thing. It sucks all the joy out of you, and everyone from there is a straight up jerk because of it. Yeah, someone from the one of the positive matter universes, like the Marvel universe, mm-hmm. will just like be super bummed out if they stay there too long. Also, they may they may die. So yeah, there's that. It it slowly siphons off your life force more or less. So get at it. Yeah. So we um, should we should talk about the negative zone. Do it, Ryan. Do it. Go. Run. Be free. All right. So it is this, uh, as you mentioned, a little bit of a like weird topsy turvy dimension in the Marvel universe. And when I say dimension, the negative zone is another universe. It runs parallel to our universe, but mostly. We've seen it tied to the Fantastic Four. Someone on Twitter asked me, hey, who is the person who is like the Hank Pym of the Negative Zone? Thinking of Hank Pym as the one who discovered like the quantum realm and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. That would be Reed Richards. Uh, He is the Explorer Supreme for all Negative Zone stuff. So, all right, let's let's think about how it differentiates from the core Marvel Universe. It is an antimatter or negative matter universe. So it's literally backwards physics sort of kind of it's like your electrons are charged differently like the opposite charges and weird stuff so the way it's described because marvel comics writers generally not scientists they just said like you know if you if my positive matter finger touches this negatively charged negative zone table it explodes And so if you are from a positive matter universe, you do not want to stay there for a long period of time. Um, There's not a lot of definitive info that I could find, but it's likely that this universe, the negative zone, is very old and actually going through a contraction on its way to a full collapse. So, you know, we we think about the Big Bang and everything is expanding, expanding, expanding. Well, this has done its Big Bang and it's sort of looped in on itself and now it's becoming smaller. It is uh, getting smaller, and that's a big thing that will tie into some of the other characters and and events that go on with it. Also, time passes at a different, faster rate relative than in most other universes. So, like, if we were there for an hour, it would feel like an hour for us, but that would probably be, like, weeks or months in the positive matter universe. So, real funky. You can't stay there for long or you'll miss your kids growing up. Oh, I don't want that. I don't want that. Why would you say that? I wanted it to feel important. Oh, well, not 
fully explored and possibly due to the contraction other factors a lot of the negative zone is uninhabited um it's probably because the universe is very very old and a lot of them have died out since tbd can i tell you how i think of it yes i think of it as like you said a dying universe where everything has been kind of wiped out and all that's left is like cockroaches essentially because it is the end and everything is shriveled and dying so you will talk about i know you're going to talk about annihilus later but you see uh, creepy bug dudes because they're what are strong enough and hardy enough and not unkillable enough to make it through this dead dry wasteland uh, uh let's a little bit about the planets because there are planets in this universe argor arthros arthros is the home planet for annihilus Balor, which is the home planet for Blastar. We'll talk about him in a minute. Kestor, Kaisok, Mantracora, the Mouse Spires. Not sure if that's a planet or a region. That was in the new Annihilation Scourge comic. So it's I think it was brand new creation. Uh, Nefig, which is my favorite one. That is a new planet introduced in Annihilation Scourge. It is Giffen backwards. Keith Giffen is the writer of the original Annihilation series. Aww. And this is Matt's way of homaging Keith Giffen. It oh, made nice. me really happy. Uh, Uta, Tarsu, Tiana, and Tisselect. Just a couple of the planets out there. Some of them inhabited uh, more so than others. So how about we talk about first appearance and the origins that we see in the Marvel Universe? Heck to the, yeah, uh, this is one of the most beautiful issues also. I think it's real good. Heck yeah. It is Fantastic Four number 51 is the first time we see the negative zone. It is, of course, the This Man, This Monster issue released March 1966, written by Stanley, penciled by Jack Kirby. In it, though... We only get a little bit of info about what the zone is. What's so interesting to me, too, is I think this is one of the most beautiful Kirby issues ever, in my personal opinion, this one and the next one. But in it, there is this beautiful machine that uh, Reed Richards uses to travel. I don't think it's ever actually named as a machine, but you've probably seen it gift in different places because people animate it and it looks really, really cool. But this was, to me, just like classic Jack one of his most beautiful machines and sort of a defining moment in Fantastic Four comics because it sort of opened up space to them and it opened up this idea of um, sort of the technological universe. Yeah, that that the splash page that you're talking about, the machine takes up like 90% of the page. You see like a little bit of Reed and Ben and other characters on there, but it's massive and it's beautiful. And then actually getting into the depiction of what the negative zone is is really cool because mm-hmm. – it said that Kirby wanted to depict the negative zone completely. Every time it was on page, he wanted it to be through his collage work. Jack would do these beautiful collages with mixed media and he would, you know, like they're just so wild and so, so cool. The first appearance of Ego is one of his collages. Negative zone, he does use the, it a lot. The Crossroads of Infinity, yep. which is in this storyline, mm-hmm. which is amazingly beautiful. Yeah, that that's like this weird middle part of the negative zone. Um, but he couldn't do that because it wasn't feasible from a time or a financial standpoint. <laughs> it was just too expensive. Took him too long to do it the way he wanted to. So we get a little bit of it here and in other issues, but it is not constant, unfortunately. I mean, can you imagine if every time we saw it, it was collage? It's so 60s, too, like uh, in the most man. delicious, fun way. I really just highly enjoy it. Yeah. But in this issue, Reed is just – he just discovers – quote unquote. I mean, it was there the whole time. He just happens upon the negative zone while doing some exploring. And so that is the first time we see it. It wouldn't be until issue number 61. So that's Fantastic Four 51. It wouldn't be until Fantastic Four 61, 62, 63, where we start to get into the next story arc that involves the negative zone. All right. Those are great. Those are good. Mm -hmm. Truly, things really start to take off in Fantastic Four annual number six. This is one of my favorite issues We've ever done. It is so good. <laughs> Reed has to go to another trip to the negative zone because he needs an antimatter element only found there in order to save the life of Sue and his unborn child. So this is the birth of Franklin issue. This is like she is Sue is not seen in the issue because she's in the hospital. She is essentially going to die. Mm-hmm. And Reed is like losing it. He's getting angry. He's like, I have to go. And Johnny and Ben are like, all right, we're going with you. We get, we're going to go. So the three of them journey on into the negative zone, wherein they come face to face with Annihilus, the living death that walks. I love Annihilus. Love him so much. He's such a big creepy bug man. Uh, he's got a cosmic rod full of powers that he keeps in his chest. Yep. Uh, he's so 
jealous and paranoid and big and buggy. Yeah, he's um he's like everything that you kind of want in a villain because he's not only sort of like physically grotesque, but he's also like emotionally grotesque where he's like the wants and desires of the world and like desire for power and all of that fun stuff. Yeah, that is like the perfect way to describe it. It To me, he's the perfect synergy of Stan and Jack creating a villain. Mm. You know, like you have Doctor Doom, which is also a perfect synergy, but as like that's like a complex layered villain over there, whereas Annihilus is this nightmare villain that is just so perfect. Stan putting all the great dialogue and emotions together with Jack's frightening, frightening uh, drawing. So let's talk about Annihilus a little bit. Uh, along, <laughs> We'll talk about Blastar as well. The two of them, they're like the general bigwigs of the negative zone. There have been other people in charge a little bit, but essentially they just trade back and forth between who's the big boss. Uh, Annihilus is a conqueror. He's a destroyer. He's often called the lord of the negative zone. Uh, he's big purple and green insect looking monstrosity. Annihilus has super like massive power levels, kind of on the level of Thanos. Definitely on the level of Thanos when he has his cosmic control rod. Superhuman in nearly every way. Uh, he gains enormous power from that cosmic control rod. It keeps him young, keeps him virile, makes him stronger, gives him energy blasts, lets him fly, do so much more. It is this like gold just rod that sits on his chest, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know how. It's not like it's it just like clunk. It's almost it right kind of weird because it kind of seems like it's in the front, but it also kind of seems like it's on him or in him. Yeah. Like, it's hard to tell. Yeah. There's a lot to that. Yeah. Even without the rod, he is super powerful. Uh, and then the worst part about him is whenever he's killed, he will just be reborn and come back and do it all over again. Because he's a freaking cockroach. Yeah. Those are uh, the two big bads. We're going to get into more about them in a bit, especially Annihilus. One of the just crappy things about especially Reed Richards, he uses the negative zone like a garbage chute. If there's something too too much for him, he's like, I'm going to just throw it in the negative zone. He's put the awesome android in there, the super adaptoid. He's convinced Galactus to go in there. He is a jerk. Well, I think that's like a perfect transition for you to get into bum, 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 the next one. Yeah. Uh, you mean BNZD? Big negative zone drama that happened during Civil War. You better believe it. Uh, of course, everybody knows Civil War, big 2000s event that began uh, when there are innocent civilians killed during a hero and villain battle. There's a big argument over should superheroes or superhumans be registered. Everybody fought. Everybody cried. Some people died. It was terrible. The team that wanted everyone to register, though, that was led by Mr. Fantastic, Yellow Jacket, and Iron Man, they decided that the negative zone would be a great place to imprison superhero dissidents and rebels as well as bad guys, a.k.a. all of them criminals in their new world order. Yeah, this is um, messed up. Yeah. I don't think you really truly in that run understand how disturbing the prison is until they start having heroes that are not going along with the Registration Act and people that you view as your friends are getting sent there and you see what degenerative sort of activity takes place and how much pain everyone is in because nobody like it's um, there's this other place called Azkaban and that seems similar <laughs> well it's almost like prisons are a really bad thing yep. let's move on we talked about a couple of events but there's one super duper important event that is annihilation annihilation is an event that actually runs concurrently the same time as civil war we only get a little bit of a crossover when Nova comes to Earth during Civil War and they're like, you got to register. And he's like, what are you talking about, you dingbats? He's and then he's like, like peace out. <laughs> he's like, I'm in the middle of space fighting. We're losing billions of people and you guys are fighting over like each other, telling each other's names. You guys suck. I'm out. Rich Rider. Peace. <laughs> See you later. Uh Love. Yeah, this. he shouts his name, Rich Rider. <laughs> he <laughs> flies off into space. So good. Um, but Annihilation happens because Annihilus gathers tons more power. He gathers tons of allies. He's getting all this stuff. He rallies all of his forces, creatures, warriors, ships, all these forces from the negative zone, and he takes them through into the Marvel Universe. He links up with Thanos. Thanos is actually working for Annihilus at this point. He's that big, that powerful. They go to the Marvel Universe and attempt to conquer it because 
the Marvel Universe was expanding into the negative zone. So negative zone shrinking and the positive universe is like making it smaller. And he's like, you know, he's already a cantankerous dude. So Annihilus is like, hey, get off my lawn. I'm going to come on your lawn. Is that a good Annihilus impression? It was very good and also very accurate. Yeah. Uh, So he's like super pissed off. He wants all the power to begin with. Now he wants even more power. And ultimately, he just wants to kill everything. There's this like dream sequence where he just wants quiet and nothing alive anywhere. That's his ultimate. Makes sense why him and Thanos would hang out. They're like, hey, do you want to like live on a farm alone? At this point, Thanos is wearing like... Like a loincloth-y yep. type thing and hanging out with a little uh, sprightly fairy lady. It's a whole look. This is mid-2000s Thanos. He was doing a lot of stuff. But the Annihilation Wave is what Annihilus's forces are called. It's truly terrifying. The beginning of it eradicates the entire Nova Corps and the planet Xandar. Destroy every single Nova except for Rich Rider because he's Rich Rider. He's the best. Uh, It is said that the Skrull Empire, the Empire is destroyed by the Annihilation Wave in less than six months. An entire empire wiped out, which also ties into secret uh, invasion and Mm -hmm. why the Skrulls do what they do later on. Anyway, the event actually sees Galactus defeated and enslaved by Annihilus and his like besties. He has these two ancient, giant celestial-esque powers that use Galactus like a power cosmic siphon where he like feeds off a planet and they take most of it into Annihilus and his stuff. It's wild. I forget what a bonkers, bonkers storyline this is because every issue I feel like you're like, what? Yeah, 100%. Annihilation brought major changes to the Kree. Uh, It put Peter Quill in the spotlight as Mm -hmm. a like a wartime general. He hadn't been seen since... Probably the 70s. Yeah. They like Keith Giffen was like, oh, yeah, I like this guy. I think I wrote him once. Boom. Put him in this book. And then, you know, did that. It actually sets the stage for everything we have for the Guardians of the Galaxy. It is without Annihilation, there would be no Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Yeah. I would say that without it because there's like the sequence of events that leads to the Guardians coming together. Anyway, Mm -hmm. Nova literally tears Annihilus's guts inside out in one of the greatest two-page splashes I've ever seen. It is one of my favorite things. So badass. If you need a reason why Nova's the coolest, this is your story. But all of this, as I said, ignites Marvel's cosmic side once again. A couple last things, because Negative Zone keeps going on after Annihilation. Annihilus reborn, of course, because he always is. Uh, He was reborn as kind of small, and there was a force trying to get into the negative zone from Earth. So there's this scuffle at the uh, Fantastic Four headquarters, and the doors to the negative zone are basically blown open. Johnny and Ben are trying to save it and like stop everything from going awry, stop a new invasion from happening. Ben, the thing, is depowered at this point. Johnny pushes Ben out of the way, closes the door, sacrifices himself to stop the invasion. He is killed in the negative zone. So the human torch is killed in the negative zone, but he's brought back like multiple times horrifically in the negative zone by different forces. He ends up getting imprisoned in the negative zone, makes some new friends with like a horse person and some (laughs) other people. He becomes super powerful, leads a revolution in the negative zone, gets the cosmic control rod, beats up Annihilus, puts him on a leash, is like, hey, dog, I'm the boss now. Uh, And then he comes back into uh, the Marvel Universe. I think he takes the cosmic control rod with him. I don't know. I honestly don't know when and how Annihilus gets the rod back. He needs his rod so badly, and I don't know how he gets it. Uh, How and if that ties into our new Fantastic Four Negative Zone story or the Annihilation Scourge story, we shall see. But, um... Yeah, Annihilation Scourge is terrific. I've read it already. I haven't read Fantastic Four Negative Zone quite yet. And I hope you guys dug a little bit of a dig into the Negative Zone and Annihilus and all that stuff. There's, honestly, there's a bunch more I didn't get to. This is, like, the my personal favorite stuff. Ryan, you are a very, very busy new dad because not only did you work on this awesome deep dive with our awesome producing team, but you got to talk to one of the most iconic dudes in the Geekiverse, I think, Anthony Daniels, who played C-3PO, not just in the film that comes out in day, days, just a yeah, couple like a weeks, month? 
also the entire breadth of the Star Wars universe, which is bonkers to me. Yeah. And I referenced a little bit about the Star Wars comics that are going on and how 3PO has a cool part to play in them. And actually, the last issue of the current Star Wars run, Star Wars number 75, which comes out the in just a couple days from when you guys are hearing this, has amazing C-3PO just like, this is why he's great. This is why he's important. And this is why he's revered by so many people. How are you, sir? I am absolutely superb today, and I love your office here. Good. I'm very glad. Now, you just released IMC3PO, a new book. Yeah. Very cool. You're in the middle of a book tour? I am in the middle of the book tour right now. I'm here in New York, and we are going other places. And it the, the crazy thing is it comes out six weeks before the final uh, Skywalker movie. And I had to kind of get J.J. to agree that I could write uh, sequences about the rise of Skywalker because I don't want to spoil anything. I am not a spoiler. But he said, sure. And, of course, he wrote uh, the foreword. Kind of funny one day on the set. We were talking about the movie, and he suddenly said, you should write a book. Are you? And he's so bright. And a couple of days later, I said, would you write the foreword? And he went, It'll be an honor. Uh, but the, the yeah, the, the book, it, they say, you know, it's Anthony's first book. It's wrong. It's my last book. I ain't doing this again. You know, <laughs> so read and enjoy. It's a, it's a one off. Putting a book together, a little bit of work. A huge amount of work. I had no idea. And that's using a computer, a, you know, a digital thing to write anything by hand back in the day. Wow. Respect the author. Yeah. And I'm not an author. Somebody said you're an author. No, I wrote a book. That's it. <laughs> wrote my memoirs. Which is pretty cool, though. Uh, you know, telling the story of all the, the films and your experiences and amazing, amazing tales. Um, did you think back in the day, oh, I would write, keep a note or keep a, a, a memory or something? I, I think maybe I began, but I'm, I'm really quite a lazy person. And, you know, to write a diary, I, it's, it's a ton of work. And in general, I never had anything interesting to say, really. And uh, so I never did. And I should have done. But some of the earlier memories of, of being in Tunisia, of being on that first film, which wasn't, didn't even have a number. It was the Star Wars when we were shooting it out there. I just kind of experienced what it was, but it was so seminal, so heavy duty that a lot of those stories really stay pretty fresh. But what I've tried to do in the book is to add things that you, the fans, everybody might not have heard. Some things I've never said before, some things I, I've felt very strongly but privately. And now I'm, I think it's okay to say, you know, for instance, at that time I wasn't feeling great. And at that time, I was feeling brilliant and, and so on. And to, to make it a story, of a, it became a journey in the book, as you'll see. Mm, I like that. That's kind of lovely. You, you mentioned the spoilers. You mentioned talking to the fans. And you are this wonderful ambassador to and for the Star Wars community. You know, thinking about Star Wars celebration and the uh, moments yeah. and the stories and everything. Do fans ask you for spoilers? Yeah, but only in the way that a kid would say, what am I getting for Christmas? It's meant to be a surprise. That way it's fun. And if any kid comes around and says, I know what you're getting for Christmas and I'm going to tell you, they are just ruiners. Let's not call them spoilers. Let's call them ruiners. Ooh, I actually love that. Ruiners. No yeah. ruining. No ruining here. Yeah. Not today. And also there's no nothing sensational here. It's, it's just kind of quiet stories. Some of the surprising, some you may know. But what I did, I had to, you know, I got the offer to write a book and I said yes without even thinking about it. How stupid was that? <laughs> but then I realized that I had a framework to, to work on. So episode four, five, six, one, two, three. I know the maths is difficult. Uh, seven, eight, nine. I had this opportunity in the, in the year of 2019 to include episode nine, Rise of Skywalker. And therefore, I had a, a kind of framework, like a coat hanger thing to hang other stories around. So I talk about the movies and shooting them and what happened around them and so on. But I go off hanging off those clothes pegs, if you like. I'm suddenly into like laundry similes or something. I don't understand. Um, Think of it as a washing line, you know, pegging things here and there and thinking, ah, that would be maybe better there. And there. trying not to get too much out of sequence, you know, and trying to make it interesting. And, of course, 3PO's early lines, well, 
I'm only a droid and not very good at telling stories. Well, not at making them interesting, anyway. I'm so tragic, isn't it? And here I am, I've written a book. How weird. <laughs> I got a little bit lost right there because hearing C-3PO... Oh, right. Oh, ...was right. <laughs> like an emotional experience. Uh, it's... I'm just going to say thank you. I know our producer over there, she had, like, we're all kind of like getting the vapors and a little bit like, that's, that's really cool. And and to be fair, a lot of people kind of do, sometimes I do it deliberately. Other times I'm just telling a story and, you know, naturally you, you drop into the, the kind of mode of it. But it is a voice that has somehow, no pun, spoken to people and spoken in here. And I, I probably can say at this point that one of the things that I, that I talk about is the way 3PO as a character has spoken to people in the audience who don't find being in society very easy. They, they, they feel awkward. They, they're not quite sure how to, how to behave uh, amongst people. They're uncomfortable. And they see 3PO as a, a, a kind of spokesperson for them, that he's a bit the same. He, he never quite knows what's going on. He doesn't understand human behavior sometimes. And more and more, as, as I get to meet uh, more fans, people come to me with stories like that. And it actually adds a dimension to my enjoyment of having played the character that it's not just a fun guy walking around being a robot. It's actually had a, a wider, deeper meaning, deeper contact with people who, who find him a refuge, too big a word, but... Uh, they can see something in him that's in them. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. I also think there we look at three PO and there's a purity. There's this you know wonderful goodness. Uh, there's no there's no darkness to the character. And I whenever I see Han or someone else giving him lip, even when I'm reading the comics, I'm just like, how dare you leave <laughs> him <laughs> alone? Yeah, exactly. And But but that is greatly to 3PO's benefit because his vulnerability makes you, the, the viewer, the audience, whatever, care that the people are dumping on him, people are trivializing, swacking him away, you know, shut up and all that kind of thing. And they recognize that as, as something that he needs protecting in a way. Just as I had a feeling when I saw Ralph McQuarrie's original painting, of which I talk in the book and have talked about excessively over the years, because it was such a seminal moment, the, the painting of this character with a face that had that vulnerability, that had that he needs looking after, or it needs looking after. I don't know whether it's an it or whatever. But that quality somehow through my performance, but mainly through the writing of the character by whoever has written that particular script, has managed to maintain that kind of vulnerability, that sensibility and sensitivity, and also simplicity. He doesn't have guile, particularly. He can lie to a bunch of stormtroopers, but oh, they went that way. <laughs> but, you know, when he's talking, really, he, he just says it. Yeah. We, we talked a little bit about fans, and, you know, you, you interact with fans at all times. I mean, I... Apologies. You've been interacting with them your entire time here at Marvel. You'll see more. We are flabbergasted and delighted. But what's the most do you have a, you know, memories or rewarding moments of meeting fans? And I, you know, especially when you, you talked about some of them see something in 3PO that must be special. I think probably the best thing is these encounters where somebody can say something really personal about what 3PO meant to them in a psychological sense. And I, I'm enchanted uh, very, very recently uh, that it's not in, so recently it's not in the book. I'll have to write another book. Well, there you go. Uh, but, but a man, um, 30 years old roughly, said um, as a child he'd been frightened by what he saw on the TV screen in, in Star Wars. And he kind of hid behind the furniture, kind of you know, peeking out. And then if it was a horrid thing, he'd peek back. Well, I used to do that. I'm, probably you did. It's a natural thing kids do. But then... Rather than being told to grow up, oh, come on, you know, it's, it's, it's a movie, his parents let him do that quite rightly. And he realized in peeping out that there was the gold man saying he was frightened. Uh, and suddenly the kid felt all right to be frightened. I loved that. I gave him, 3PO gave him the permission to show overt emotion. In this case, it, it, it was fear in a very minor way. But it's an example 
of something I didn't know I was doing for the audience, that 3PO has been a bit of a, a, a role model. <laughs> I, I don't want to overinflate it, but, but that's a real pleasure. And when people say, you know, thank you for my childhood, I have heard that so many times, but for that person, it's the first time they've said it to a person who was in the film. I'm not there. Big surprise, we're not there when they watch the film. None of us is, but sometimes people are waiting for that moment to personally say, thank you, I really liked what you did. And that makes me feel good because it was a ton of work. <laughs> uh, I, I tweeted about you visiting this morning and uh, a, a buddy of mine, Chris, uh, Chris Arant from another website, Newsarama, he said, please tell Anthony hello from all of us. And it's the, you know, that sense that we all have that connection to you from various points in our life. You know, my wife, I know is, she's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, please take a picture. And I, I want to say, Thank you ahead of time because you will be a part of my daughter's life. You know, she's we've already had Star Wars films on in the background and you she there's just something about them, the the colors, the sounds that attracts her and she's only 5 weeks old. I know she's going to have a connection to a character such as C3PO. Just so long as her first words aren't I am C-3PO, human <laughs> cyborg. It's got to be daddy, hasn't it, or mummy? You know what? I'll be happy if she says <laughs> that. Whatever she says her first words, I'm going to be crying it's, like a baby. It's probably going to be more like R2-D2, isn't it? Come on, let's get real. <laughs> no, she's going to be more vocal than that. Okay. She's, she's, oh, she'll but, be, but at five. Yeah. How long have you actually been working on the, the book? I think probably you. I actually can't remember. Probably, certainly over a year. But I've had the opportunity um, tra traveling a lot with uh, airports and planes and things and trains, um, but also being on a film set because I don't think a lot of people realize how much time you have to yourself in, in your trailer or in a little tent next to the set. And there were many days that I actually kind of gloried in having my laptop there. And I have told the story recently about one day they, they kind of were not sure if 3PO's ankles were going to be in a shot with BB-8. <laughs> And I said, well, I'll just wait till, you know. And at the end of the day, they came and said, we're terribly sorry. We didn't need you. And that was fine because I'd written, you know, half a chapter there. So that was yeah. cool. Did All, I... Although working with BB-8 is always a pleasure. <laughs> but, I'm, you know, I was listening to what was going on set and think, no, oh, they're cool. I'll just carry on writing. <laughs> we were talking about comics a little bit. And we, you know, we've C-3PO has been in numerous comics. There was yeah. also this Star Wars special C-3PO Phantom Limb comic. Um, yeah. which I was great issue. Um, that's where we saw the, the red limb and how that, that story for you as someone who has portrayed this character through so many parts of its life. How is it to find out what that you know, that story was? Well, of course there is a chapter here called red. I, um, thinking how to lay out the book was kind of interesting, something I'd never really done before. But I realized that you kind of need chapter headings so that the audience kind of, you know, can remember where we're up to, for heaven's sake. But I know there's a chapter towards the end that is called uh, Red. And it partly is about JJ dumping this ridiculous thing on me. Um, and I was <laughs> arguing. And in Photoshop, because you know, he wanted to show damage, you know, history. But I mean, this was like giving 3PO your shirt. It was just too shocking yeah. in a Star Wars movie to have a shirt like that. Um, so he gave him a red arm. And it, it was a beautiful red, deep sort of crimson-y red. But, um, and I think in the book there is a picture because I had some badges and buttons made because, you know, it was now a duel of the fates on set just to <laughs> make sure he knew that I was angry about the red. Um, but we, we did it. But I, uh, I had these buttons made which was... Um, no forgiveness? No forgiveness. <laughs> and it was like a horror movie button. Um, you know, this, this limb just there in the red. No forgiveness. I would say it every day on the set, no forgiveness. And he'd go, yeah, I know. <laughs> and then, of course, he, he fixed the, the very last scene of the movie. He did give 3PO back a gold arm because he gets it, you know. Um, so we don't have any... Uh, we don't fight over things like that anymore, but we have a, a great relationship. But what I did like is that somebody took the idea of a red arm and thought, well, where has that come from? 
Because I, I made up in Photoshop, you know, this arm with rivets on, like, like elastoplast, you know, um, what do you call them here? Sticky thing, if you're injured yourself. Band-aids. Band-aids. Yeah. Band-aids, so yeah. I put big band-aids with staples. On. I thought it was really cool, you know. <laughs> Iron rivets in his arm shows damage, but more subtly than red. No red. So JJ, of course, came round in the end. And I, he's got such a, a vibrant, witty, lively brain that you can, you can talk to each other like that. Yeah. I mean, he's writing Spider-Man right now. So yeah, he never stops. Never stops. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Are there any robots in Spider-Man? There are JJ? actually. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. He's got, the, but they are killer robots. <laughs> yeah, we don't want. Uh, please, again, I want to keep three PO safe. I want him separate from these. But yes, yeah, I do talk about the, the, the bit where in episode two or three two, three PO does get a blaster in his hand at one point, and that was fun just to have this this thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but basically, three PO is, is is a pacifist, really. Yeah. Uh, how do you, you know, if, when you think about the arm changing, the the moment where he has this this blaster, how yeah. do you think about your performance over all these years and what three PO is going through? I think about it with with huge gratitude because look, this 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 mug says mob. I mean, it's a mug. It's a mug. It's a mug. A mug. But you can put different things inside it. Right now, I have very delicious coffee. But in a little while, I may have had enough and start shaking. So I'll have some water in there. The mug is still the mug, but now it's got a different quality about it. And, you know, talking about the red arm, uh, that gave a different quality, a, a feel, a kind of interest curve. If you take the original twosome of R2-D2 and C-3PO, that was a very established, very quickly established relationship. And then we go to episode five. R2, R2-D2, where are you? And he's off doing something else with Luke. And now I'm going impossible man with uh, with Han Solo and that made such a different dynamic took a bit of getting used to mm. like oh but I'd worked hard with that relationship got to do this one now but that's how it it works and what I love in in these uh, this last trilogy is working with uh, Poe and Finn and um, Ray uh, because that's again another dynamic particularly <laughs> With Oscar Isaac as Poe, what a brilliant actor. And he, hopefully, as you will see in the finished cut, because it isn't kind of finished totally. Because I wrote this, you have to realize, some months ago. Yeah. Uh, well, is, everything's quite fluid. But 3PO very much depends on the situation in which he's placed, with whom he's placed, what he's got to interact with, and so on. But he is basically 3PO. But the writer, in this case... Uh, Chris Terrio with, with JJ has given him things. <laughs> I wish I could tell you. Oh, I was like, oh, "What are we getting? What are we getting? What are we getting?" It's okay. I don't. I everything Marvel is spoiled for me. I, I don't have Star Wars spoiled for me. It is a delight. It is a treasure. Mm. You know, and it's. I, I want nothing to be ruined. Yeah. I haven't. I haven't even watched the last trailer because I don't want. Oh, the last right. The last trailer is actually. It's quite good. Oh, you should. I can't. My mom's taking the baby for 24 hours. We're seeing the film twice, Thursday night and Friday morning. We're having a little time of it. Yeah. It's very exciting. I'm excited because, you know, you only see fractions of it. And and when I'm looping it or doing ADR, uh, you see bits that are so tantalizing. And that's when you see the bits, uh, hopefully, that ILM have added, you know, the special effects are not endless blue screen uh, soulless additions. There's one particular scene, which is in the trailer. It's massive. It's massive. And I know we were all standing there sort of observing this thing, which ILM just replaced everything with. And it's as though we really are there. And it's a real mind flip to think, wow, goosebump time. Where originally, of course, one was looking into the British countryside and sort of, you know, there's life going on around you. Like people don't care. They don't know what you're doing, actually. But that's a magic little flip, uh, a little gift for being in the movie, actually. Has that changed the way you perform or think about performing from those early days where it was, you know, so uh, the practicality of everything versus as you've gone on to the the second and the third trilogy? It does. I've said it. um, The joy of real scenery, real stuff around you is I have this childlike uh, thrill of seeing the stage set. 
I have a childlike thrill of standing in the wings of a theatre and, and just looking across the stage and kind of out at the audience, kind of curved. But to walk into a soundstage at Pinewood Studios through a perfectly anonymous doorway and go, wow, somebody, the team, the, the designers, the set construction people, have created extraordinary things physically, not on the camera, just a, a wonderland, um, which is great for one's sort of personal childish side. But um, it costs a ton of money, <laughs> just, as, just as green screen stuff costs a lot of money at ILM. But there's something visceral that is so appealing and so rewarding as, as an actor stand there and just absorb everything. And I think with, with the other characters, particularly Daisy and Oscar and John, it really has to, in, in this case, in Star Wars, to speak to their belief in what they are doing and what they're saying because they're surrounded by all this stuff. For me, I'm kind of busy going, um, I have to remember where this book is. You know, maybe somebody's moved it. Oh, because I'm, I'm flying blind. Yeah. Um, so I need to rehearse where that is to pick it up. And for the most part, <laughs> it works. Yeah. I, you know, you talk about the practicality. I think... I love the Muppets and I love puppets and I love practical effects and all of that. And so, yeah, I, I think it must be being on those sets and seeing those creations has got to be so thrilling. And more and more in, in the later films, uh, they did use puppeteers because with puppeteers, you get, a, again, the word visceral sense of more than a computer animator. Brilliant, brilliant that they are. But when you have a puppet and you've got a human kind of attached, even if with, with sticks or it, it, it's... I always remember trying to do salacious crumb, you know, <laughs> snarky little... <laughs> all that going on. Um, Tim Rose did that. It was a glove puppet, yeah. I tried it. It was rubbish. It didn't exist. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't salacious crumb. And, of course, with Frank Oz being Yoda, you know, there's lots of examples. Uh, I talk about Jabba the Hutt, who is, I think, created by five puppeteers. Gosh. But all working together, and there are... Uh, I could tell you. There are other creatures, critters, whatever you want to call them, that aren't just done with a team of people working closely, I mean physically closely, in wearing green, and they will be X'd out. But just to see it is that, wow, look at this. Look at this art happening. Look at this skill that's creating something down here, and you'll all be disappeared. All right, your name will be up on the credits, but nobody knows you were there. Actually, it's a bit like me. Nobody knows I'm there. <laughs> I think many, many people know that you're there. They're not, uh, to be real, uh, they're not meant to know I'm there because, you know, 3PO is, is 3PO. He's not me. Uh, I have somehow got something to do with it. But I, what I do write about, and why I take great joy in talking about the team that, you know, creates BB-8, for instance, is... Credit where it is due. And unfortunately, when the original film uh, was released, everybody was so thrilled, they kind of forgot I was a part of it. And I do talk about that, hopefully honestly and, and, and sincerely and correctly. But I did at this point need to say, well, you know, everyone was having a grand time. Everyone but me. Hmm. It, it was a difficult time. And how glorious that I've come through all that. Yeah. Can, can write the book and can have just the best time with Disney doing episode seven, episode eight, and now the glory that you will see episode nine. And uh, I've stayed around enough to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an amazing journey all told. You know, you, you talked about your uh, in appreciating the work and the artistry of those puppets. And we talk about the fandom for Star Wars. Every, I don't know any very few people who aren't fans of Star Wars. What are you a fan of? What, what do you get excited for and, and, you know, find joy from? That's a really, really difficult question. I have, if it's Star Wars, I, I've enjoyed the enjoyment of the fans. It, as I uh, know, I came late to it. But I'm finding enjoyment in, in, in slightly calmer things in, in life. Uh, totally travel. Totally travel. Uh, we're trying to see the world before it kind of disappears, mm. frankly. Will I go on a space mission? I'm kind of thinking it wouldn't be as, wouldn't be as interesting as going, you know, to Galaxy's Edge or whatever. <laughs> um, but you, you never know. Uh, I did fly around on Concord a bit, which, which used to go so high that you, you did get a, a better view of, of the planet's surface. But I have noticed that 
talking about that of you is that people say, what's it like to be in Star Wars? So how does it feel to be in all the Star Wars? I don't know. It's too big. It's like you need to go up in a rocket ship to look down at the Earth to go, oh, it's awfully big, isn't it? And it's kind of blue, and I like it. But my nose has been so close to Star Wars that I haven't almost had time to pull back and then think, to think possibly, it's a lot better than I thought. You know. <laughs> it's pretty glorious. Anthony, thank you for being here. Thank you for chatting with me. Uh, and thank you for writing IMC3PO. Everybody can pick up the book. It's available now, wherever you get your books. And uh, In a bookshop is good. I like bookshops. Agreed. Yes. But Some people have to use the internet. Yes. But if, if there's a bookshop near you, go to a bookshop. Smell the paper. <laughs> uh, Anthony, thank you so much. I've had a blast. Thank Aww. you. Appreciate it. What a dang delight, Ryan. He yeah. just seemed lovely. Um, and we're going to have even more coming up next week. So your question of the week is, I'm going to be doing a big talk about She-Hulk because you guys asked for it. But my question is, which She-Hulk run is your favorite and why? Ooh. You can tweet us your answers using hashtag This Week in Marvel. Email them to twinpodcast at marvel.com or send us a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel. Yeah. Can you give me a little tease? What is your favorite She-Hulk run? Sensational She-Hulk. It's real good. It's so good. It's so 80s. She's just living her life, just lizzoing it up super hard, just like, yes, I'm a queen. It's great. Yeah. I think I would go with the Dan Slott. Oh, it's so good. Several, like I think it was two series by written by Dan and with amazing art by Juan Bobbio and a couple of others. We'll get into all that, I'm sure, oh, yeah. next week. But yeah, she's dope. Um, also, I just love that uh, in, like, issue one, Captain America kicks her out and is like, hey, stop bringing home weird overnight guests. Her weird overnight guest in that first one is Juggernaut, I believe. No, the I think the first one is, like, a Hydra guy. And then she also has Juggernaut. She has a series of strange collars. Look, she likes to get a little bit. Good for her. <laughs> Live her life. All right. So, yeah, uh, let's get hype about She-Hulk. Right now, we got a couple of uh, pieces in here. One uh, email from our friend Samuel Lang. He says, hey, gang, I was thinking since Marvel has been doing comics for other franchises, such as League of Legends, Warhammer, etc., what other franchises would you guys like to see comics made from? Well, of course, I'm going to say Godzilla. Duh. There's no way I would say anything else but Godzilla. You probably know what I'm going to say. Dungeons and Dragons, baby. We used to do Dungeons and Dragons, right? I know. Let me write it. <laughs> Give it to me. I have a rogue character that will blow your mind. She gets into mischief. <laughs> I want you just to write it in that voice, too. That's pretty much it. I just remember I played a D&D game where it was like four rogues and you could get nothing done. We broke the game and we just were like, can we climb that tree? We're throwing coconuts at the monster. And there's like, I guess, roll for that. I guess you're climbing a tree and throwing coconuts at a monster. Oh, man. You're welcome, world. Yeah. I think I also any video game that I'm like super into at any given time, I would want more from and I would want us to do it because I think we do the best. For us what? to talk about later, Diablo 4. Whoa, I can't wait. Take oh. me, Lilith. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Much. No, not enough. So good. I, that's a great question, Samuel. Um, you didn't tell us what you'd want us to do. Yeah. Uh, I love this question. If you guys listening have thoughts, send them to us. Tweet hashtag This Week in Marvel. Want to know what, uh, what you'd want to see Marvel do. And yeah. then we have one more. Simon Williams says... Gotta say, every X-Men book I read coming out since House of X and Powers of Ten has been real good. You're not wrong. The yeah. Dawn of X stuff has just been killer. I hope y'all are reading Marauders, because that yeah. is so diggity-dang good. I love it so much. I think it's my favorite of all of them. Even when that announcement was made, I was like, yeah. <laughs> that one. Yeah. All right, Laurie, and that is a wrap for this episode, but this episode of This Week in Marvel is produced by Percy Verlin and Zachary Goldberg. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. Additional production help from Jamie Frevely and Emily Kimura. And special thanks to our presenting sponsor, presented by Namor's Underpants. Namor's Underpants, for when there's motion in the ocean and you want to keep your might watertight. All right, that's it. This is Marvel. Your universe.